We've been looking in the Gospel of Mark now for some months, and we are in chapter 10 this morning. I invite your attention there to a message I call simply, We Have Left All. We Have Left All. Mark chapter 10, verse 28, Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. And so Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This passage is set against the backdrop of Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler that we saw last week. He came to Jesus saying, Good Master, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? He had already done in his mind everything that his religion had taught him to do. And yet he still obviously lacked a peace in his heart. He was still seeking. There was something that had to be missing. And he knew that Jesus surely could supply that final missing piece that he needed. What is it? What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? As a rich man, he could give more alms. He could offer the best offerings. He could give the spotless lamb that came at such a premium price. Others might have to content themselves with only being able to offer a, a bird, a dove, maybe. The rich, you see, in their thinking, had an inside track. Uh, the disciples had heard that, they, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all they taught that, believed that. Their wealth was a sign of God's blessing and favor, and it gave them almost a guaranteed track to eternal life. Jesus pointed him to the law of Moses because the law of Moses should have convicted him of his sin. That's what it was designed to do. The fact is, this man was depending on his work and his worth, his wealth, to get him to heaven. And because of that, because he had put these things in his heart before God, he had violated the very first commandment. I mean, God only gave him ten, and and, and he he never got past number one. The first commandment said, Thou shalt have no other God before me. Jesus then brought that point to this man's attention and he told him to go and sell everything he had and give it to the poor. And he went away sorrowful because he was very rich. Imagine being taught all your life to believe that the way to heaven could be bought with money. Imagine thinking that having money and giving money was a sure path To heaven. Shouldn't be very difficult for you to imagine. For many years, even among those who claimed to follow Jesus, a a religion existed that had a complex system of indulgences. If you sinned and wanted to continue in that sin, you gave an offering and you would be granted an indulgence. 
to pay for your sins. Within that same religious system, wealth could be used to give money and buy their loved ones out of purgatory. That happened too. And so for, for many years around the world, this religion existed, still exists in some forms today where wealth has a decided advantage. Beyond this, there is the idea birthed in American Christianity that God blesses you and gives you favor to get wealth based on your faith to give lots of money that are called seeds of faith if you've read a lot of books uh, written by modern authors or listened to a lot of Christian radio or television, you've probably heard somebody talking about these things. If you need a miracle, give an offering. If you need a really big miracle, give a really big offering. God loves you. And if you're wealthy, God loves you a lot. You hear all these things in American Christianity today. Doesn't play very well in third world countries, but they're not immune from it. Oh, today in third world countries, they're not looking to buy their, their third Falcon jet. Wealth to them might be an extra cow or goat. But it's still the same. If uh, God loves you, then He'll bless you. And if He loves you a whole lot, He'll bless you a whole lot. And if you don't have those things, if you don't have wealth, then you're just missing out. Your faith is weak. may not be going to heaven at all. You see, that's the way it was in Jerusalem in the first century. And the Judean religion that was so popular there and the Judistic way of thinking... It's still the way it is in a lot of modern Christianity. In our text today, we're going to see Jesus take this on, head on. No holes barred, straightforward, direct to the point. The Jews were wrong in the first century. Heaven is not for sale. Eternal life doesn't come to the highest bidder. Salvation is not available for a price that we can pay in any money. No amount of money can buy it. The good news is, is that Jesus Christ has paid for it. And that's the only way to get it. And so we'll see in this discussion that Jesus has with the disciples after his dealing with the rich young ruler, we'll see him give us some important information, still very much applicable to our world today about the true nature of the Christian faith. Jesus is going to talk to them first about the difficulty and then the impossibility. Difficulty and impossibility. Two words. You'll see them in our text. Verse 23, Then Jesus looked around and said to the disciples how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at His words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches. There it is. Trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now maybe you've heard a story that about how there was a gate in ancient cities that was very small. And, 
And uh, if you got there and the camels wanted to go in the city, then they'd have to unload them, and then they could get down on their knees and crawl in. Maybe you've heard that story. I, I heard it. And, and all I can say to you is I'm sorry. Uh, there, there wasn't a gate like that. Uh, and uh, that wasn't the way the disciples understood this story. Can a camel go through an eye of a needle? No. Can a camel go through an eye of a needle? No. That's what it was about. That's how the disciples would have understood it. And uh, that's why verse 26, they went on, they, they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? If they can't make it, who can? And Jesus gives them the answer. What is impossible with men is not impossible with God. With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. The difficulty was there, yes, but the impossibility was also there. We can put this down, folk, very plainly and simply this morning. Salvation is impossible for men and women to attain on their own. Period. It is equally impossible for poor, indigent people as it is for wealthy or extravagant people. Poor people don't go to hell because they're poor or go to heaven because they're poor. Wealthy people don't go to hell because they are wealthy and they don't go to heaven because they're wealthy. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 16 of a rich man who died and he said in hell he lifted up his eyes. There was also a poor man named Lazarus who had laid at that rich man's gate, Jesus said, full of sores. And he died. And he lifted up his eyes in Abraham's bosom in paradise, what we'd call heaven. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because this man says, I, I have five brothers at home. Think about that family. Very wealthy family. One man. Already in hell, five brothers on the way to hell. And he begged, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back so he could preach to my brothers and they'd be saved. But within the story then, Jesus said that Abraham responded. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets. If they won't listen to that, they won't listen to somebody who came back from the dead. You see, the law and the prophets were all preaching the very thing those wealthy men, those five wealthy brothers needed to hear. That they were sinners. That they had failed. That their wealth was not going to get them to heaven. Their works was not going to get them to heaven. All the good things that they might be able to do were not going to get them to heaven. Those five brothers that were still down there should have been listening to the law because the law was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. But have showed them of their sins so they could trust in Jesus and be saved. If they didn't listen to that, if they missed that point, if they embraced the prevailing thinking of the day as they obviously were, then even Jesus said if somebody came back from the dead and preached to them, they still wouldn't be saved. Guess what? Somebody did come back from the dead. In fact, two of them. One of them was named Lazarus. One of them was named Jesus. And they still rejected. 
Jesus said it plainly. And that story then was a great illustration of it. But you get this down this morning. It wasn't their wealth that was condemning them. It was the fact that they had ignored the law and the prophets. This story played out again and again. Remember the story in Luke 18 of of the self-righteous Pharisee who went to the temple and began to to pray, lift up his head to heaven and prayed, Oh God, I'm so thankful I'm not like other men. I I give alms. I I pay my tithes. I, I, I do right. He was so confident that he was going to heaven. Meanwhile, There was a publican of all things, a publican, a despised tax collector. Jesus said he was so broken, he wouldn't even look up. All he could do was beg for mercy. God, be merciful, he said to me, a sinner. And you know what? Jesus said, that man went on his way justified, S-A-V-E-D, saved, headed to heaven. Pharisee just went on his way. You see the difficulty that was going on in this culture and in that time. And Jesus confronted it again and again and again and again. And it came because of a bad and deeply entrenched belief system. They had embraced a false gospel. Instead of following the law and understanding the law that The law pointed them to their Savior and exposed their sinfulness. Instead, they embraced a kind of self-righteousness. Salvation based on works. And yes, on wealth. You see, a false gospel, no matter how sincerely it is believed, will never get a person to heaven. I'm going to say that again, in case you missed it. A false gospel, no matter how sincerely believed, will never get a person to heaven. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. We don't see Paul the apostle saying, well, you know, they believe all wrong, but they're really sincere. Oh, they're all messed up on the gospel. But you know, they're they're living a good life. Paul said, if anybody preaches unto you any other gospel than that which you've received, let him be accursed. Why? Because people believe that stuff. And it's going to condemn them to an eternity in hell. That's as serious as it gets. I'd a whole lot rather somebody give me bad financial advice. Give me a bad investment. Man, it cost me everything I had. Well, that's bad. But it's nothing like believing a false gospel and then spending eternity in hell over it. Sincerely. Oh yeah, they're sincere. The Jews were sincere. 
They were as sincere as they got. They were wrong. Simon Peter late in his life would even warn us that a person who believes in a false gospel is worse off than if he had ever never heard of anything at all. That's what 2 Peter 2.21 says. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Believing a false gospel leaves a person worse off than if they'd have never heard it at all. Why? How could you say that, Simon Peter? It's simple. When a person believes a false gospel... Now they've got an experience. Now they've got a testimony. Now they've got assurance. Well, I know I'm saved. Why? Well, I'm wealthy. I know I'm saved. I give alms. I know I'm saved. I, I, I give a tithe of everything I possess. I know I'm saved. How do you know it? Well, I'm fasting twice a week. Now, all those things are good things in and of themselves. Now, honestly, all of us could do a little bit more fasting. Most all of us. All those things are good things and there's nothing wrong with them. But the Bible tells us very clearly when we offer up our works of righteousness to God as a means of having eternal life and being accepted by Him, then they are abominable to Him. They make Him sick. They're like filthy rags in the sight of God. When a person believes a false gospel, they become almost impossible to reach with the true gospel. That's exactly what Jesus said about the rich young ruler. And all those like him who trusted in riches. This passage then reminds us that heaven is impossible for men, but possible with God. The only way to be saved is repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus taught them then about the difficulty that's caused when a person believes in a false gospel and how... It's impossible then for them to turn away from that on their own. It takes a mighty work of the almighty spirit of God and the truth of God to get through to them. It can happen. But it's rare. So he warns them then about difficulty and impossibility. You see those two words in her text. But then he also encourages them. By speaking to them of the true benefits of salvation. You see, it was at that point, after Jesus had said to the rich young ruler, Will you go sell everything you've got? Why? Because they were between him and God. His wealth and his works were, were, had become an idol to him. He had put those things before God. And, and before he could be, he had to get those things out of the way. If he could turn away from his works and turn away from his wealth, he could see himself as what he was and recognize that emptiness as what it really was. He needed Jesus in his life. He needed to be saved. He needed to be forgiven of his sins. Turn away from that dependence on his work and his wealth. And so Peter responds to that then after they got away and got to themselves. We know, Lord... We've left all and followed you. We've done exactly what you told the rich young ruler to do. He he went away. He rejected you, but not us. We we left it all. We'd left our nets, left the business, left the family, left our homes, left it all. 
Jesus didn't argue with him because it was obviously true. Instead, he said to him, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospel who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this life houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. All of us wish he had left that one off. But it goes with the list of what we're going to get in this life And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter did not bring this up because he was hoping in some way that what Jesus had said to the rich young ruler would also apply to them. We've already got that down. Therefore, we can be sure of eternal life. No, remember John chapter 6. Jesus had looked at the multitudes who left him one away. And he said to the disciples, will you also go away? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of what? Eternal life. He said, who do men say that I am? And it was Simon Peter who said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Simon Peter had already been saved. He knew he was saved. He had already believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that. He didn't bring this up then because he was somehow thinking that it was going to bring him eternal life. Uh, He brought it up thinking, well, if if it's not going to give us eternal life and it doesn't, I mean, you you brought it up to the rich young ruler. I'll bring it up to you. Uh, You know, what's uh, what's in this for me? What What are we going to get then for leaving it all and following you? Privileges, the end of the kingdom. That's what was on their mind. And. As you read the text, and you're going to see it again in weeks ahead, this was really on their mind a lot. As Jesus was making that last trip to Jerusalem, in fact, next Sunday, we're going to be looking at that time where they started uphill, uh, headed up to Jerusalem, go through Jericho and all that. I mean, he is headed to Jerusalem for the last time. And as they're going, they're thinking, well, this is it. You know, Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom. It's coming. It's coming. Jesus kept talking about dying. He's going to, we'll see it over and over again. Talking to him about the cross and dying and suffering. and They just didn't get it. They were talking about thrones. Who's going to be on the throne? <laughs> who's, who's, who's going to be in charge? What's in it for us? What are we going to get out of this? It's interesting that Jesus acknowledges this, that they had indeed left all. And it's even more interesting that he wraps up everything they had left behind under two general headings. They had left behind their possessions and left behind people. Isn't that an interesting way for Jesus to define wealth? The house, your land, and your family. Isn't that interesting? house, your shelter, your land, that was their sustenance, how they made their living, and their family. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ would often separate people. In fact, Jesus said that in Matthew 10, 34, and uh, please notice this is Matthew 10, 34, yeah. 
Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, Jesus said. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Following Jesus is going to require some sacrifices to be made. It might be family. I've seen that over and over and over again. The course of my ministry where people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, were baptized and joined the church and their family. Shut them off. It might be friendships. Lifelong relationships that you had with people that you love and you thought you could depend on, but you receive Jesus Christ and start living for Him. You don't have to leave those folks. They'll leave you. It might be a precious home. It might be land that was inherited or bought. It's certainly true of those called into ministry as the disciples were. It was certainly going to be true of them. It's been true of many others since. I've packed up my stuff and my kids and moved them again and again and again when God led. Nancy's given up more jobs than I can count. We've left houses and friendships and relationships behind and left our, and our children had to too. It's a part of what it means to follow Jesus. There are some things that we have to leave behind sometimes to go where Jesus wants us to go. And so for those in vocational ministry, as these disciples were, it was going to have a very particular meaning, but it also has a very specific meaning for all of those who will follow Jesus. Jesus said, if you love your family, if you love your house, if you love your land, if you love your livelihood, if you love that more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, they say, well, well, Jesus never asked me to sell my house and move. Amen. God bless you. I've never had to sell a land and, and, and move. God, amen. God bless you. I've never had to give up a job in order to serve Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank God for your blessings. That don't mean it may not be in your future. Remember, Jesus talked about persecution. What if living for Jesus means that the state is going to come in and confiscate your land? It's happened before. And, and by the way, it happened right here in our shores. It was before there was a United States and before there was a Constitution. But it happened in our own country. If you didn't pay what was called the pulpit tax in those days. Tax levied like property tax on lands and houses and possessions. And if you didn't pay it. They'd take it right here in our own country. Did it happen again? I hope not. But persecution is real. And it may fire up in a greater way. And if the Bible is true, it will fire up again before Jesus comes. And, 
you may live to see it. Will we give these things up if necessary in order to hold on to our faith? But you know, the Christian faith is not so much measured by what we might give up or what we lose. (laughs) The Christian faith is measured by what we get. Because whatever we give is nothing compared to what we get. Jesus defines this in two ways for him. He answers this question, well, Lord, we've left all that have followed you. And the unanswered or the unspoken question is, what are we going to get? And Jesus tells them. And he defines it in two ways. It is what you get, number one, in this life, in this life, right now. And then what you get in the life to come. So let's just look at it. There's benefits in this life through God's marvelous Blood-bought church. God works to replace all the things left behind with others. You see, you may, you may leave your house. But God will make sure to it that others then will provide you with a place to live. You, you, may, you may leave your land. But God makes sure that others will share their land with you. You may leave your father and mother, but God will send you many, many who are like a mama and like a dad to you. Many, not a few, many. You may leave your brothers and sisters, but God will send you many, many who will be like a brother, like a sister. You may lose relationship, yes, with children or or move away from them, but God sends many more, many, a hundredfold many. A hundred times more. Nancy and I had five kids. That's 500 kids God's sending us, Nancy. I hope they don't all come to lunch the same Sunday. <laughs> I'd say that's a conservative estimate of all the kids I've had that I felt like was just like they were mine. See them grow up. See them saved, baptized, teach them the word of God. Oh my, yeah. You see, we don't talk about a church family for nothing. There's a reason why it's that way. Because God makes sure that, yes, there are things that we leave behind, but through this marvelous ministry of the New Testament church, then we build relationship. We call one another brothers and sisters because we are, and we bless one another, and we love one another, and we share with one another and pray for one another. And the relationships in our life are multiplied again and again and again and again. This is why commitment to a church is so important. Why we ask you to formally join, to make a decision where you actually join the church. And you do that by by coming down the aisle in the invitation time and telling me, you know, God's leading me to be a part of this church family and we'll receive you however we can receive members. It might require you to be baptized. It might be something as simple as transferring your letter. But it is an important move for us to make. It is a commitment that you make, much like a commitment you make to your own family. You make a commitment to this church family. I want to be a part of it. I want to join. I I want to have that commitment and build relationships with one another. Commitment. 
It's how relationships are built. It is a fertile soil then in which relationships can grow and flourish. God does not intend for us to be isolated in the kingdom work. That's why He gave us churches, why they're important. And that's where we see this promise that Jesus makes us in this passage play out. So that though we might have lost some things or left some things, God makes sure that we're always surrounded by people who love us and that we love them back. There are blessings then in this life. But then Jesus also says there are blessings in the age to come where we're assured of eternal life. In the age to come or life to come, there is eternal life. And in this coming kingdom of eternal life, Jesus says the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Now this is a a parable and it emphasizes that all will have eternal life in exactly the same way. It makes sense when you think about it. Well, the first are last, okay. But then the last are first. Oh, what's that mean? (laughs) It means they're all first. First is last, last first. You see what it says? It is emphasizing then the equality of eternal life. There is nothing greater than eternity. There's not eternal eternity as compared to just regular eternity. There's not eternal eternal eternity compared to just regular. Well, you get just regular eternity, but then the rest of us get eternity eternity. No. Eternal life is what? Is there anything greater? I mean, once you put the three dots on the end, that's it. Eternity. Eternal life. That's what you have. And Jesus tells us what this eternal life is. In John chapter 17 and verse 1, uh, these, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son also may glorify You. As You have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as You have given Him. And this is eternal life. That they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. Eternal life. Knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ for all eternity. And so the benefits, if there is a difficulty and an impossibility that Jesus warns about, there are also benefits that Jesus promises. Benefits in this life and in the life to come. We can wrap this up then this morning rather simply with a few final thoughts. First of all, salvation isn't difficult for us to obtain. It is impossible to obtain. If you have bought into a false gospel that teaches you that your works or your wealth will get you into heaven, and basically there's maybe 10,000 different variations in the world. I don't know how many. That's hyperbole perhaps. I don't know how many. False gospels are being preached or how many people are preaching them. But I know one thing. All the false gospels have one thing in common. They all center on human works. On who we are and what we've done. All of them. In some way incorporate human works as a means of getting to heaven. Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ 
instead calls us to repent. To repent from what? Repent of our sins. To repent from our dead works. To repent from any effort to try to save ourselves. To repent means to turn from those things and turn to God with a simple plea. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And let me tell you something this morning. If you can present God with a sinner and call on Him for mercy, He will present you with eternal life. Simple truth. Building on that then, the benefits of salvation are available to everyone who believes on Jesus. Who then can be saved? Everyone can who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. All other plans are false and are doomed to failure no matter how sincerely they may be held or practiced. Benefits of salvation are set against the backdrop of what we give up because there's no possession and no people who are more important to us than our relationship with Jesus Christ. But Jesus reminds us it's not just about eternity. Salvation is not just about putting a check in the box. Yeah, I've got my eternal eternity covered. When I die, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to go and be in heaven for all eternity. I got that uh, check the box. None. Move on. No. There are benefits of salvation in this life. And that reminds us of the importance of being a part of a, a church family where we build relationships and where we serve Jesus together. The poorest beggar. The vilest sinner gets the same salvation and the same eternal life as the most wealthy person imaginable because we all must bow before the same cross. We all have to be saved by the same blood and then we all get the same eternal life. But don't think that it's all just about eternal life. It's about this life. Two. Great motivational, zig, motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar, famously spoke of often in many of his speeches, but he also wrote it in one of his books. He said, imagine spending your whole life climbing the ladder of success to finally reach the top, only to find the ladder was leaned against the wrong building. Reach the top. And it's not the right top. See, Jesus warned us about the possibility and the potential of wasting our life, of losing our life. But because of what Jesus says in this passage, the last will be first and the first will be last, uh, that tells us, folk, something very valuable and very important. That means that it's never too late for a person to be saved. As long as there's life, there's a potential and possibility that that person may call on the name of the Lord and be saved and be saved for all eternity. Though they might be on their deathbed, literally with almost their dying breath, and cry out to God to be saved. Then they'll be saved and they'll be in heaven for all eternity. Late in life? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We believe that person who's in prison, maybe who's committed terrible crimes, maybe he'll never be let loose. He'll spend his whole life in prison and die in prison. 
But can that person be saved? Yes. Can they have eternal life? Yes. Yes. Yes, they can. I've talked to a lot of folks who were saved late in life. And some, yes, who were saved literally on their deathbed. And they all said the same thing. I wish I'd done it sooner. Sorry, I waited. I've never heard anybody say, I got saved too young. No. Oh, no. I wish I could have sinned a little longer. Well, that don't make any sense. Oh, but I've heard a bunch of them say, I wish I hadn't waited so long. You see, eternity comes to all, and it comes to all the exact same way. It is by repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll all get the same eternity by the same grace from the same God. But what are you doing with your life? See, Jesus offers us the benefits now, the life that we can have now, and it's available to you. It's available to you, first of all, if you'll be saved. You can't have it without it. Don't wait. Don't put it off. If you need to be saved, be saved today. Right now, today. But it's also something for us to ask ourselves about what we're investing in eternity. Are we using our life? Are we experiencing the benefits that Jesus promised us now? The great preacher Dr. George Truitt, who pastored the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, for many years before W.A. Criswell went there, W.A. Criswell was the one who I heard told the story about Dr. Truett. He went to visit a, a, one of the renowned Texas ranchers. Had a huge ranch and he was visiting with him. And, and he drove him around his ranch and finally they pulled up on a knoll, he said. And the rancher got out and said, Dr. Truett, he said, as far as you can see in that direction, I own every bit of that. And then he pointed this way. said, as far as you can see that way, I own every bit of that. They put it over here and he said, as far as you can see, that way, as far as you can see, I own all of that. And back this way, as far as you can see, I own it all. And Dr. Truett pointed up there. And he said, what do you have up there? Hmm. Jim Elliott was a smart man. He is no fool. Who gives up what he can't keep in order to gain what he can't lose. See, this is all about our life right now. As well as the life that is to come. Let's stand together, please.